Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. This morning, I want to speak to you on the subject, an apocalyptic Christmas story. Concerning our text, Eugene Peterson says, and I quote, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. And so if you would take your Bible and join me in the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to restrict our study this morning to the first six verses, but to get the larger context, I will read for us uh, the entirety of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verse one and reading through verse 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the, uh, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, that is, on those who had kept the commandments of God, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Eugene Peterson is right. This is not the nativity story that we grew up reading. There's no baby in a manger. There are no shepherds rejoicing. There are no wise men bringing gifts and worshiping. Now there are angels, but they're not singing. Rather, they are engaged in a heavenly war of what we should certainly call eschatological proportions. No, in this Christmas story, there are different characters all together. We do find a beautifully clothed woman. We do find a male child, a son, And we also find and are encountered by a great fiery red dragon whom the Bible says stands to devour, literally to eat up the son who is going to shepherd all the nations. Yes, I think we are fine in giving it the title, an apocalyptic Christmas story. Revelation chapter 12 basically tells us the grand redemptive storyline of the Bible in a summary fashion. In many ways, it is a panorama of salvation history in fantastic imagery, which is, of course, the nature of apocalyptic literature. We receive the story, the true story of the whole world as it looks to the past, addresses the present and also points to the future. Now, as I read the text a moment ago, you probably saw naturally three divisions in this passage. Verses one through six, which is going to be our focus this morning, is the story of a woman, a male child, and a dragon who is later identified as Satan and the devil. Uh, Verses seven through 12 talk about a war in heaven and also contain a song of redemption. And then finally in verses 13 through 17, we see the satanic attempt by the evil one to destroy the people of God, but we note that it is a failed project. Indeed, this is a Christmas story unlike any you and I have probably ever heard or ever read. Now, before we go to the text, let's lay the overarching storyline of what we're about to read. Christmas and the story of Christmas does not really begin in a city called Bethlehem. The story of Christmas really begins in a garden called Eden. You see there immediately following the fall when Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation of the ancient serpent so described here in our text, God made a promise. And God made a promise that he would indeed send a rescuer, he would send a savior. In fact, some people believe that this verse, Genesis 3.15, is the most important verse in all of the Bible where we read, I will put hostility, God speaking, between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Yes, you will uh, strike his or bruise his heel, but he will crush your 
head. Uh, This promise that God made to Adam and Eve and therefore the promise that God made to you and me is often referred to as the proto-evangelium or the preaching of the first gospel. Furthermore, this promise would be developed in the book of Genesis and later in Old Testament scripture through two major covenants. First of all, the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12 and the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is in these verses that we are about to examine then that we see the fulfillment of those promises that God made to the patriarchs thousands and thousands of years ago. So we're gonna walk through these six verses quickly and I wanna make three overarching observations about this apocalyptic Christmas story. Number one, we can trust God to keep his word. John says in verse one, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of stars on her head. This, by the way, is the first of seven signs that will appear in the remainder of the book of Revelation. It is also the second time that we see symbolically a woman. Uh, We saw the first woman back in chapter two and verse 20. She is there identified as the Jezebel. We see a prostitute in chapter 17 and we see the bride of the lamb of Christ in chapters 19 through chapter 22. But here is a different woman altogether, again described as being clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So then a a hermeneutical question naturally arises, who is this woman that is being described here in chapter 12? And not surprisingly, especially given apocalyptic literature, there is no unanimity on who we should understand this woman to be. For example, The Roman Catholic Church has historically identified her as Mary. Others have said it is the nation of Israel. Others have said it is the church. Others have said it is the ideal messianic community or the ideal Israel. But I think we receive uh, some help as to the proper identification from the Bible itself. If you go back to Genesis chapter 37, verses nine through 11, it becomes very clear that the vision that is there given to Joseph in a dream is being drawn upon by John here in the apocalypse. And when you go back and look at that vision in Genesis chapter 37, you discover that the sun represents Jacob, You discover the moon represents Rachel, and you discover that the 12 stars stand for the 12 tribes of Israel. And so perhaps the best way of getting at this is to conclude that this woman (coughs) represents the righteous remnant of Israel, the people of God. And indeed, I think Romans chapter 11 would lend supporting data to this particular understanding. Uh, And so it is not, you say, why not the church? Well, Christ gives birth to the church. Uh, The church does not give birth to Christ. And so I can understand uh, very easily the argument for the messianic community, but more specifically, I do think in this context, it is Israel that is in view. Well, then look at what it says there in verse two. Uh, She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So she's pregnant, 
Uh, she's in labor, she's in agony. Of course, those of us who have uh, had the privilege of standing alongside or sitting alongside of our wives when they have given birth to our children, uh, readily identify with this. Although my wife, I think, as well as every other woman in here would say, uh, no, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, you don't have any capacity to identify with what we go through when we labor and agonize in pregnancy. And I'll be the first to say, you're absolutely right. And praise God, I don't. So she is crying out in labor and in pain to give birth. And by the way, this also draws from the imagery and from the traditions of the Old Testament, often applied, not surprisingly, to the nation of Israel as a mother giving birth. For example, Isaiah chapter 26 and 54 and 66, Hosea 13, Micah 4, Micah 5, and even Matthew chapter 24 all speak of Israel in the context of a mother that is giving birth. And indeed, throughout redemptive history, we have seen again and again and again the nation agonizing and suffering as they longed for her Messiah to come. Indeed, Robert Mount says it cleanly and succinctly, it is out of faithful Israel that Messiah will come. And so God promised us he would send a rescuer. He promised us he would send a deliverer. He promised us he would send a savior. We see that in Genesis 3, in Genesis 12, in Genesis 49, in Deuteronomy 18, in 2 Samuel 7, in Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, 23, 24, 45, 110, Isaiah, Zechariah, Malachi, Micah. He promised he would send a deliverer and our God always keeps his word. Number two, we can trust God always to honor his son, verses three through five. John sees a, another sign, a second sign in heaven, and it is much different than the first one. Here he sees a great fiery red dragon. Now, verse nine, of course, helps us fill out what is being described here because there he is described as that ancient serpent, uh, the devil, even Satan himself. In fact, I have often said that verse nine of Revelation chapter 12 provides a very nice summary of Satanology in terms of the four names that are given to our great enemy. He is uh, the serpent. He is Satan. He is the devil. He is the great dragon. And let me just go ahead and unfold this very quickly at this particular point. As a great dragon who is red, it speaks of his murderous intentions and his ferocity to encounter him is to rightly fear him for he does have great power and great authority and he seeks to do great damage to you and also to me. He is furthermore described there in verse nine in terms of his names as the devil, Diabolos, the, the accuser, uh, the one who as the text says down in verse nine and 10, day and night accuses God's children before him. Uh, he is Satan, Satan, the, the adversary. Uh, the one who is in opposition to us, the one who is our enemy. Brothers and sisters, never forget, Satan never intends anything good for you or for me. He, as Jesus said, is a liar and he is a murderer 
and he delights in bringing misery. Satan was having a really good day yesterday in San Bernardino, California. He delighted in the unwanted taking of innocent life. He is a murderer. He is a liar. He is not someone we should trifle with. He is not someone we should play with. And here in our particular text, he is described again as a fiery red dragon with seven heads, with 10 horns and seven diadems. This, by the way, recalls a vision in the book of Daniel, the fourth beast of Daniel chapter seven. And in this particular context, minimally, minimally, it speaks of great power and great authority. And I would note just for your purposes that we will see him again in chapter 13 and chapter 17 described in similar fashion. But then look at what the Bible says there in verse four, his tail, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them down to the earth. Now dogmatism on this, as in many cases in Revelation is unnecessary, but I along with people like Grant Osborne agree that this probably refers to the primordial war in heaven when Satan rebelled against God and that this is an indication that a third of the angelic host followed him in his rebellion. In fact, I believe typically by means of typology, we may even have this described for us in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through verse 15, where we have the five great I statements of the evil one being described there. Listen to the word of the Lord. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the earth. And so I do believe that by typology, Isaiah chapter 14 informs us at least somewhat of the fall of the evil one. And I do believe that the reference here to a third of the stars would seem to indicate that at least one third, one third of the angelic host followed Satan when he rebelled against our Lord. But then notice what it says in the second part of verse four, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might <clears throat> devour it. The dragon takes his stand. The verb there is a perfect tense. He takes his stand and he is abiding there and his goal is to devour to consume, to literally eat up her child. This should not surprise us. This has been Satan's activity since God made the promise in Genesis chapter three and verse 15. For example, he moved Cain to kill Abel in Genesis chapter four. He moved Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew baby boys in Exodus chapter one and chapter two. He moved Saul to kill David in 1 Samuel chapter 18. 
He moved wicked Queen Athaliah to destroy all the royal heirs of the house of Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 22. He moved Haman to plot genocide against the Jews in the book of Esther. And of course, he moved Herod to kill Jesus in Matthew chapter two. But praise God, he failed. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, excuse me, who is going to shepherd all nations with a rod or with an iron scepter. David Platt, in commenting on this particular phrase, says it so well, the birth of Christ on that day in Bethlehem inaugurated the death of this ancient serpent, just as it had been promised back in Genesis chapter three. The birth of Christ declared the death of the ancient serpent. The death of Christ defanged the adversary. And indeed he was defanged at Calvary and there's an empty tomb that stands as a monument to his defeat and to his death. Psalm two, by the way, is reflected in this phrase where it says, he will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. It is a wonderful messianic Psalm that speaks of the universality of the reign of King Jesus and the reign of our Messiah. And of course, as a shepherd defends his flock against wild beasts, so Christ will strike the nations that oppress and persecute his people that oppress and persecute his church. And so at this point, we kind of can follow the storyline really pretty well, but then suddenly verse five just kind of takes us into a direction in verse six that we were not prepared for. Yes, she gave birth to a male child. This male child is to rule all the nations in fulfillment of Psalm two with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And just like that, the story turns in a completely unexpected direction. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, I agree with those Bible teachers who say that in essence, verse five provides a summary of the first coming career of the Lord Jesus Christ. It provides a summary of the first coming career of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it includes his birth and his destiny to rule all the nations, Psalm 2 and verse 9. And yes, it also includes his ascension as well. So you've got his birth, you've got his promised rule, and you've got his ascension. Of course, that begs a question. Why in this chapter and in this verse is left out both the crucifixion and the resurrection? And I think that a twofold answer can be given to that. Number one, the crucifixion and the resurrection were beautifully expounded back in chapter five. Go and read Revelation chapter five. Secondly, the ascension is the unquestionable proof that Satan was defeated in that he could not prevent Christ from rising from the dead and ascending back to his father where he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Some have even speculated he is now seated at the very place that Satan coveted and therefore led to his fall. So to summarize, Satan disgraced and dishonored himself with his idolatrous ambition 
But God exalted and honored his son in his incarnation and his humiliation. Indeed, we are reminded once again, the way up really is found in a willingness to go down. So we can trust God to keep his word. We can trust God to honor his son. And then number three, we can trust God to care for his people. Verse six anticipates the dragon's rage in verses 13 through 17. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now in this context, again, this is why you take biblical hermeneutics. In this context, the wilderness is not a negative idea, but a positive one. It symbolizes a place and a promise of both protection and provision. God promises that he is going to provide for his people. God promises that he is going to protect his people. Will there be martyrs? Yes. Will there be suffering? Yes. Will there be death? Yes. But will God be with them? Yes, he will be with them. I've shared with my uh, hermeneutics class on a number of occasions that my colleague at uh, Southern Seminary, uh, Bob Stein, was talking with me one day. And he said, I I think you'd find this interesting in my work among peoples around the world, in my work on the mission field. I've discovered a very interesting thing. He said, if you were to ask people in very difficult contexts, what their favorite books of the Bible are, you might be surprised that again and again and again, it has been my experience that their favorite books of the Bible are the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Daniel and Revelation, which did surprise me. I would have thought that you would have heard something like the Psalms, maybe the Proverbs, Gospel of John, Romans for you theologically inclined uh, students, uh, maybe someone like me, the Song of Solomon. Uh, That's why I've written three books on it. I am a romanticist at heart and I'm married to a really great gal. So I like the Song of Solomon a whole lot. But he says, no, it's, it's Daniel and Revelation. Why? And he said over and over, he's heard the statement because those books teach us that in the end, our God wins. And indeed they do. And therefore they become an incredible source of encouragement, which again is really why the book of Revelation was written to begin with, a tremendous source of encouragement that God is sovereignly in control of all this taking place. He is with you. He is protecting you. He is providing for you. And you can be confident that no matter what is going on around you, in the end, our God wins. And so as God cared for Israel following the Exodus, God has specifically prepared a place for her, a place where she will be fed, the ESV, nourished for 1,260 days or for three and a half years. This will be a place of spiritual refuge. And again, to bring it to a closure, she may be persecuted, she may suffer, but she will be provided for and she will be sustained. Everything God's people need to honor him, they will have. Everything they need to experience the victory provided by the male child, the babe of Bethlehem, they will have. In other words, 
God has preserved and taken care of his people in the past. God is preserving and taking care of his people in the present. And yes, we can be certain that God will not fail us in the future. We have his word. We can trust what he says. I love Christmas time. I love the Christmas hymns. And not only do I like to sing them, I also like to apply them uh, to appropriate text of scripture. And as I was putting this particular study together, a very simple two verse hymn by Charles Wesley seemed to so well fit this apocalyptic Christmas story. I close with this. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thy own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us up to thy glorious throne. That is an apocalyptic Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that even through the unusual genre of apocalyptic literature, uh, you tell us the wonder and the joy and the magnificence of Christmas. And Lord, how I thank you that you indeed brought into this world a male child, a son, that even though the evil one sought with all of his might to devour him, to eat him up, he gloriously failed. And that male child is now seated at the right hand of your throne in heaven. And that male child is going to come again. And that male child is going to rule with an iron scepter all the peoples of this world as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I thank you uh, that the evil one has had a stake driven through his evil heart. And he is bleeding out today and one day is going to be vanquished from your good creation forever and ever and ever. Lord, the longer I live, the longer I long for that day. And so, King Jesus, thank you so much that you have dealt with our sins in the past. Thank you, dear Lord, that you're dealing with our sins in the present. And praise your holy name that you are someday going to eradicate sin completely, never to be tainted by it again. We long for that day, long expected Jesus. We know based upon your word, it is going to happen. Praise your name. Hallelujah. What a savior. We pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. 
Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.